podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Oh, the shark bait has such teeth there, and it shows them pearly white. Just a jackknife has old Maggie Heap, babe, and it keeps it up. So welcome everybody to another episode of Macklin's Take with me, Andy Clark and Matt Macklin. Today we are revisiting a theme we came up with during lockdown, which we kind of neglected recently, not for any particular reason, but we were reminded of it by John Joe Walker. So John Joe, this one, uh, this one is kind of for you because you asked me, where has the big fight deep dive gone? And I thought, actually, that's a good point. Where has it gone? Because there's no reason not to go back and do these because they are really, really good fun. So I asked him to suggest a few fights and he came up with some really good ones. But the one that leapt off the page at us really was was Eubank Collins 1. It's, it's one we've been meaning to do anyway. And it is a really, really good one. We've got a great guest for it. He'll be joining us in, the, in a few minutes' time. You know who it is because... Uh, it's in the description of the episode. Uh, but as you know, I like to keep people in suspense. And um, we don't know exactly when he'll arrive. Uh, but he's a very punctual man. He's a very organised man. So I think he'll be pretty much on time. And he was there. He was he was commentating on the fight. And Matt, I remember this one really, really well. Because it was March the 18th, 1995. At that point, I was 17. You would have been 13, I think. Yeah. And it was just kind of... I was obsessed with Eubank, uh, as I've said on the podcast quite a few times before, and his career up until that point had been very interesting. We'll, we'll fill in a few more gaps on Eubank and Collins and how they got there in, in just a bit. But what really sucked me in about this fight, apart from the fact that it was Eubank, it was mostly where it was, because it somehow landed in Mill Street in Cork in the west of Ireland. Now, Mill Street, I looked it up again today, but I remember at the time just thinking, where the fuck is that? It's barely even a town. But what it does have is a big arena, the Green Glens Arena, which is a big equestrian centre, which two years previously had had the Eurovision Song Contest, and somehow that's where it ended up being. Darkie will probably know more, Ian Dark, our our guest, whose identity I've just revealed. Um, He will probably know more. But that, for me, just made it, just so kind of appealing because we talk a lot, don't we, about boxing being the traveling circus and anything can happen. It touches down in these places and you never know what's going to happen. And for me, where it was just made that even more applicable because, you know, I've always had a a lot of affection for Ireland. I spent a lot of time there as a kid. I mean, obviously you're an Irishman yourself. You spent a lot of time in the West of Ireland. And what I loved about the place was that, and this is probably because I went there a lot when I was small, but it's an ancient place, like it's an ancient culture. It's got this kind of spirituality and mysticism, I always felt, where you looked at the landscape and you just thought, wow, like anything can happen here. You know, this is an exciting place. It's kind of bold and rough. Um, and so that week, more than any other, I just got the feeling that this was one of those fight weeks where anything could happen. Yeah, when you were describing that then, I just started to think about the film The Field, have you seen it? <laughs> yeah, I have, yeah, yeah. With the Ball McCabe and the Yank. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah, I love that. Yeah, it's great. But no, you are right. It's um, boxing. If you look at some of the big, big fights, the special fights in boxing, they have ended up in um, a venue or a city which, you know, was totally thinking outside of the box. You know, Zaire, the Rumble in the Jungle, the Thriller in Manila. These are fights where, you know, they wouldn't know, you know this wasn't Madison, Square, wasn't Madison Square Garden, Las Vegas. It wasn't the... The O2 in London, or, or, or you know, the London Arena, or whatever it was. Then it wasn't even the points in Dublin. It was, you know, it was this place, this, like you said, an equestrian centre in Mill Street Court. Which would, you start to think when you're putting a fight of that magnitude together, can can it even cope with logistically with hotels, with travel, with everything else? Is it how we're going to pull this off? And uh, you know, where there's a will, there's a way, I guess. Yeah, exactly. And we'll, 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 we'll get all of that from Darky because that's exactly it. Like Sky TV turned up and Eubank at this point was kind of, he was midway through or more than midway through the, the 
deal that he'd signed with Sky, where we talked about it previously with Thomas Hauser, where they wanted him to box eight times in a calendar year. And he nearly did it when you look at the records. It was supposed to run from, I think, pretty much the 1st of July, 94 to the end of June, 95. And this might have been fight number five, I think. They got six done within the year. Seven, just a few weeks after the, the end of the year. It was a very ambitious scheme, but it was planned really to kind of take him around. It was the Eubank World Tour. Um, so that would have been part of the reason maybe why it ended up where it was. So Eubank in his career at this point, he was 41 wins and two draws. He'd beaten Nigel Benn, obviously back in 1990. We did a deep dive on that with Buncey, with Steve Bunce. So go and check that out if you if you haven't listened to that. The next year he had the two fights with Watson, which took a lot out of him because that second fight, obviously the way it ended with the injury to Michael, Chris Eubank would say, and people who watched him would agree, that he was never really the same again after that. But he boxed a lot. In 92, he boxed five times. In 93, he boxed three times. In 94, he boxed six times. The performances weren't always that convincing. He had a draw with Ben in the rematch. He had a draw with Ray Close, who we then rematched and beat by split decision. People kind of got the feeling that maybe a defeat was was coming, that possibly the rubber, the green that he was getting on the cards might be about to run out. But in the fight before Collins, he put in a really good display against, against Henry Wharton. Um, Collins, for his part, he was a good amateur who basically learned to box pro out of Boston uh, in the United States with the Petronellis, uh, shared a gym with Hagler briefly. He had two world title fights with the WBA at middleweight, losing to Mike McCallum and Reggie Johnson, then lost a European title fight against uh, Sumbu Kalambe in Italy. Um, at that stage, he came to Britain then. He had his first 19 in America. He came to Britain then, signed with Matchroom, um, and Eubank was with them as well, put together some good wins, beat Chris Pyatt to win the WBO middleweight title, and then he collided he collided with Eubank. And in terms of personalities, I mean, it was some it was some kind of clash, wasn't it? You know, simply the best against the Celtic Warrior. They could hardly have been more different. I, I remember this fight. I was I was so uh, excited for it. I, I was only, I'd only, you know, I, was, yeah, I was 13. I was 12. I was nearly, I hadn't quite turned 13. Uh, I'd been boxing just over 12 months. Uh, I, I think I'd probably had 16 or 17 fights at this point. Uh, and I remember we didn't have Sky, and I stayed at my, but I stayed at my nan's anyway. And she, she she definitely didn't have Sky. But I remember uh, ringing my mate the next day. This was the old landlines ringing the house, ringing to see you know he opened it answer for one. And secondly, uh, he did. He was in, and, and and yeah, he told me the result. Uh, college won unanimous decision, and I don't want to say I couldn't believe it because I wanted Collins to win, but I just. You know, Eubank had been getting away with it. Like you say, the Ray Close. I remember thinking Ray Close was unlucky in both those fights. He, he, he'd scraped home a few times in, in really sort of, I don't know, uninspiring performances, just got there. Um, so it was, I was, I was absolutely over the moon when I heard Collins. And by the way, I was, I, was, I was a Eubank fan as well, but I don't know, I wanted, I wanted Collins to win. He was Irish and everything, and everyone was kind of talking and, and excited about him. And I loved his... Uh, He's real tough, hard man attitude. You know what I mean? He didn't give a shit. He was just, you know, he, 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 Eubank was brilliant at the mind games, but Collins did him, you know? Yeah, I think it was it. One of uh, Tommy Quinn or someone, he had like a mind coach and he kind of spooked Eubank, didn't he? Saying he was going to be hypnotized going into the fight. And he had uh, headphones on, sitting in the corner, waiting for him in the hood over. And he, I think, I think he did spook you back a little bit. Oh, he definitely did. We'll we'll, we'll get into that in in more detail. But but Eubank admits in in his book, um, which I had a quick flick through again yesterday, just specific to to what we're talking about today. And he says that that Collins really got under his skin in the very first uh, press conference because he sat him down. Um, the pair of them sat down. Collins spoke a lot in Gaelic. Um, and then he turned to Eubank and said, words to the effect of, and I'm quoting from the book here, you dress like a Brit, speak like a Brit. I've helped the Irish. What have you ever done for your race, the Africans? And it just really wound Eubank up. You know, he admits that it, it just, it made him really angry. And he said at that point, when he looks back on it, when he looked back on it, he knew that he was in trouble from that point because 
there's no place for anger in, in, you know, in the squared circle. But he know that Collins got to him. He just seemed to know. He just seemed to know what to what to say to him. And the, and the previously kind of implacable Eubank, who does done such an amazing job at winding up Nigel Benn, and basically everybody else he'd ever boxed pretty much. All of a sudden, he was on the other end of it. Yeah, yeah, that's it. That's and that's what I was kind of referring to in the sense that he he, he beat him probably before the fight happened. He won, the, or he certainly had the upper hand in the mind games in the build up going into the fight. Collins outdid him in every area of it. Outthought him. Out, you know, out bluffed him. Whatever way you want to look at it, he just had the uh, he had the Hawkeye on him a little bit going in, and of course then the atmosphere and everyone behind Collins and you know, he was. Um, yeah, he he, uh, he he put him down, didn't he, with a body shot? He had, he, I mean, he was balancing more than anything. Eubank, but he, you know, it was a punch that landed, and he went over. So we got the that was a ten eight. But then Eubank did come back into the fight. Remember, we dropped Collins, I think, in the eighth or ninth round with a good right hand in the tenth, right at the start of the tenth, right at the start the of the tenth, didn't he? Yeah. Right down here. But he was, you knew he was okay because he caught the rope and he was smiling. Good shot, dropped me, but. I'm all yeah. right. Type of thing, you know. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. Well, Ian Dark has entered the waiting room, so I'll uh, I'll admit him. Uh, he is uh, he's in Spain. Some warm weather training for Darky before he heads over to the to the World Cup in in Qatar. Um, Darky, are you there? Can you hear us? Yeah, I can. Can you hear me? All right. Absolutely, we can. Absolutely, we can. That was that was seamless. We kind of do this as live, Ian, because when we started <laughs> doing this. Um, unbelievably, I was the technical guru and I did buy some <laughs> editing software, but I, I wasn't really, I just didn't really know how to do it. So we basically thought if we do this as live and try and get into that discipline, then we'll basically never have to do any editing, um, <laughs> which was by far Smart the best move. way. Smart move. You're yeah. technical whiz kids. I'm not. <laughs> how are you, Ian? I'm all right, Matt. How are you? Yeah, good, good, good. So, Darky, where we've got to is we basically kind of set the scene, just 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 filling people in on how these two got to the ring, uh, where they were in their careers, and we've spoken mm. quite a lot about about the venue for the fight, about Mill Street, this this unlikely place mm. in the west of Ireland with this with this big arena. Admittedly, what are your memories of of that week with regard to the actual place? Because it's like, as I said earlier. It's barely even a town. I mean, population-wise, yeah. it's it's a village, really. Yeah, I mean, imagine there was a big fight being staged somewhere in the Lake District in some village. I mean, it felt like that. None of us had ever heard of the place when the fight was announced, let alone know how to get there. Um, we eventually, of course, found all that out. But it all seemed quite strange. There were obviously good financial reasons, as there always are in boxing, why the fight was where it was um but but it seemed quite a way even from cork which is where we, en- we ended up staying uh ahead of the fight so i mean it was a bit like a magical mystery tour yeah that's exactly it we 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 both were were agreeing that it just had that kind of feel to it with with the west of ireland being a kind of rugged wild place it had that kind of feel more than ever that anything could happen that week that anything was was possible um did, did it feel like that to you yeah, I mean, the, I think Eubank was eventually um, was down to fight against Ray Close, wasn't it? So the Steve Collins thing happened not by accident. They would have obviously run into each other eventually, anyway. But um, yeah, e- even that part of it was a little bit strange and a little bit unconventional. I don't know what feeling I had really. I I can't remember if I'm honest what feeling I had ahead of the fight, but somehow Eubank always used to find a way to win. He'd done it for 10 years and I think 43 fights or something like that um, by that point. So I think the feeling was that he would kind of prevail, but as I'm sure we're going to discuss, Steve Collins tried everything in his power to try and tilt the psychological balance his way. Do you know what, actually, I think the reason why, and I can't remember now the exact details, but I, I, I remember Brian Peters, who would have been really young at the time, had something to do with the fight ending up in Cork. Um, I'll, have to, I'll have to ask him one time, but that's going to really bug me now. But I know, I know he was in the ring after, and I think he had a, he had a relationship with uh, Barry, Barry Hearn, and obviously Eubank was with uh, Matrimon, and Collins was, actually. Um, I can't remember 
why why they chose Mill Street. But there was there was a story to it, which I will I should have found out, but I will find out and slip it in another time. So we'll get to the we'll get to the night itself in in just a little bit. But but in terms of Eubank, obviously you're an experienced commentator at this point. He's now signed with. He signed with Sky. He's one of the biggest names of British boxing. Had been for a long time. What, what were your kind of experiences of Eubank like down the years? I loved covering him, to be honest with you. And I think all the media guys did as well, because he was so unusual and so eccentric. But it wasn't an act. He really was like that. I remember going to his house in Brighton. Of course, he had two houses next to each other, um, and he owned them both. And I mean, he, he was telling me he was waiting for his hairdresser, who he was flying in from Manchester to cut his hair. The guy was landing at Gatwick and was in a taxi paid for by Eubank down to Hove, not Brighton, Hove. He was very keen on that, uh, to cut his hair. And he wouldn't do an interview with me until he dressed up in the full gear, you know, the monocle and all the, the sort of Lord of the Manor clothing. So he was like that from the word go. I really enjoyed covering him. We had a, we had a very good relationship and i've told this story before there was that fight in south africa he had against dan shoma where after the fight we're sitting on the ring apron i mean he's been poor in the fight and we've scored it against him and he says to me how did you score the fight with the dark and i said well do you want an honest answer and he said yes please and i said well i've i've scored it by a couple of rounds to, to the other guy Chris, I said, you just didn't do enough, I didn't think. And he went, he turned to Barry Hearn and he said, we shall have to look at the tape, Barry. Um, three weeks later, I got a phone call from him saying, I've looked at the tape. I, I agree with your I agree with your scoring. I lost. <laughs> so, I mean, that's how it was. Um, yeah, I mean, he was fun to cover. You know, Kay, look, he got a few decisions that he probably shouldn't have got, but he was such big box office along the way that... Um, Somehow people well, did not turn a blind eye to it, but, you know, they just still wanted him around at the top. Hey, hey, ki- hey, kids. Hey, everybody. Sitting here with a famous Slovenian philosopher. How are you doing, sir? I am uh, in hell, thank you. Are you uh, excited about something? I am excited about this latest uh, CIA-funded venture. A CIA venture? Yes. It's called The Desire and Capital Podcast. Oh, what is it about? I refuse your fascist question. Well, there you have it. Listen to The Desire and Capital Podcast, coming soon to a bourgeois platform near you. On your marks, get set, go! And as I say, Sky had, Sky had signed him to to what at the time seemed like a very ambitious deal in that they wanted him to fight eight times in a in a calendar year. But that's the kind of a 10 million, I think, was the, the figure that was quoted. Uh, that's yeah. the figure he puts in his book. I mean, that just shows, doesn't it, what what big news he was that Sky, who were this disruptor at the time, they got the Premier League by that point, but they were just looking to just, just make hay in any way that they possibly could. They felt like they had to go out and get Eubank. Well, yeah, it, it was called Chris Eubank's World Tour. I mean, <laughs> and we got these big pamphlets handed out to us and brochures, glossy, glossy brochures. Chris Eubank's World Tour. Yeah, you're right. He was supposed to fight eight times a year. We thought, well, that's never going to happen. Um, and it wasn't really much of a world tour. I think, you know, <laughs> we used to joke saying, have we had our jabs yet to go to Cardiff or <laughs> Belfast, wherever it was. So, um, you know, it was all like, it was all a lot of pro- promotional hype and it, and it and it did the job for the promoters at the time. But yes, you're right. Sky did throw a lot of money um, at Chris Eubank. And yes, that's how big a profile he had then. And in terms of Collins, um, obviously he he learned his trade over in over in Boston with the with the Petronellis. So that's a, that's a hard scrabble schooling over there. And then off the back of a couple of failed world title attempts and that European title fight as well, which which didn't go his way, he then came and set up in the in the UK. Um, mm. And signed with with Barry Hearn. I mean, what what level of a fighter was he seen to be at the time? I mean, we know obviously he'd won a, a world middleweight title in his fight before against against Chris Pyatt. Was was he seen as a as a big threat to Eubank? Um, I think he probably was. Yeah, because 
one thing about Steve was he was as tough as Eubank. And my goodness me, Eubank was tough. And as you know, Andy and, and, and Matt, he, he had a wonderful chin. Um, but Collins, I think, just had that, that sort of tank-like ability to just keep coming forward and walk through anything the opponent had and dispirit them. So, yeah, he was he was a live contender, you know, and he was gutsy and he was made of the right stuff mentally as well um, to be a top-level operator, you know, and, and he proved that that was the case. So, yes, I think he was seen as a relevant threat in the fight. So to go back to the the specific build-up, we were just talking before you joined us about how Eubank admits that that Collins got to him right from the off by by something he said to him in the in the press conference, and then of course there was all this talk about the about the hypnotist, which in the end turned out to be the most effective smoke and mirrors that I can really think of in kind of modern professional sport, maybe. But what what was what was the word around the kind of campfire about that at the time? I mean, did you pay much attention to that, or did you think it was there was something in it or it was a trick? I mean, what were people saying? Well, I mean, it, it was amazing what happened, really. I mean, from the word go with the fight, um, Steve Collins had worked out. He was a pretty smart guy that Eubank had a way of monopolising the build-up to fights and establishing a kind of psychological um, hold on his opponents. And he turned up, I think, with an Irish wolfhound to one of the, the early press conferences. And he started speaking in Gaelic as well to try and throw... Eubank, probably with a little bit of success as well. But, you know, the real story, as you said, Andy, was was on the eve of the fight when um, Collins got into to Eubank's face and said that he'd, you know, he'd been hypnotised and wasn't going to feel any pain. He, he, the, the, he, would, he would go through the fight without feeling any pain. Well, that completely spooked Eubank. Of course, we're talking four years on or so from the, the Michael Watson near tragedy. Um, you know, and Eubank was never quite the same about trying to knock opponents out after that. And it, he didn't want to fight. He was pulling out the fight. Did we see it all as a bit of a gimmick? Um, yeah, there's always that suspicion that it was a psychological ploy, which it was by Steve Collins. But just for an hour or two, and it's happened before, the fight was off on the, on the, the, the night before. We were told this isn't going to go ahead. Chris Eubank won't fight. But it, he was told, I think you know, by his people and Barry Hearn, of course, they were anxious to, <laughs> to protect the fight and the promotion that, you know, his reputation would be ruined and it looked like he would be running scared if he didn't fight. So it, it did go ahead. But I'll tell you what, it was it was a clever ploy by Collins and it definitely was a, a factor, I think, in what came to pass. Yeah, I was, we were saying before, Ian, uh, when, when you look at the, obviously you've got the fight in the ring but then you've got the psychological warfare building up. And as you said there, Eubank normally would have had the upper hand on people in that regard, but Collins had him over a barrel, didn't he? He did. Yeah, he, he, he really did. And uh, I mean, you could argue that it was a little bit of a dark art psychological ploy, really, to take advantage of a man who had been through the trauma and ordeal of, uh, of what had happened to to Michael Watson at, at his hands um, to go that route. But, you know, hey, look, you're no better than me, Matt. You've been in there in, in fights. You, you're you're in in the biggest fight of your career. You're going to try anything that gives you an edge, aren't you? Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. And, 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 and uh, what they say, all, all's fair in love and war. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. People have done worse things, haven't they? Ahead of fights, for sure. Well, the... the, the real problem that Eubank had with it as he describes it is that as, as you as you say he he had the situation with Michael Watson in that second fight and he was never the same after that and in the 10th round of the fight against Collins that that played a part we'll get to that in 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 just a minute but the reason he objected so much to this idea of somebody being somebody being hypnotized and being impervious to pain was that he just felt that was really really dangerous he knew what yeah. could happen in there and if somebody was just prepared to just be so reckless with their body because they couldn't feel pain that something like that could happen mm. again. So, so like you say, I mean, that is, you know, you, you, and that is a little bit of a dark art, isn't it? I think. Yeah, it is. It is. I mean, when you think about it, uh, if if that worked, you could get a hypnotist who didn't make you feel any pain. Don't you think some fighters might have tried it before? 
<laughs> yeah. Mike Tyson opponents wouldn't have minded, would they? <laughs> exactly. But and even even but even if you think about it, I'll just as you're talking about it there, did you bank obviously had the Watson situation, but when he did drop Steve Collins in the tenth round, <laughs> it, it didn't look like it bothered him then. He was definitely going for it. He was trying to get the knockout. He wasn't holding back. Um, yeah, well, he was in trouble in the fight. I mean, he 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 knew that, didn't he? He was in trouble in the fight. He was in trouble on the cards. He'd been down in the eighth round himself. But you know that that was amazing that tenth round because <clears throat> excuse me, um, you know. You thought, Cracky, is he going to pull this round again? Is he going to pull this out of the fire again? You, you wouldn't rule anything out with him. He, you know, he'd done it before. Yeah. It was really uh, interesting, that, because he, he put him down with that long right hand right at the start of the round, and, and Collins kind of sagged into the ropes, grabbed onto the rope. And I was watching it again yesterday, and I couldn't, even now, I still couldn't really make my mind up as to whether he was really hurt or not, but it was really early. He had loads of time left in the round, Eubank. And he did, particularly towards the end of the round, just kind of step off him and start just prancing, really, just showboating like he was prone to do at times. And after the event, he did say that, you know, that that finishing instinct that he used to have pre-Watson was now mm. was now gone. And then Ronnie <coughs> Davis gave him a good a good slap in the corner at the end of the mm. round, which wasn't that unusual. But he basically, you know, the idea was the the supposition was that he 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 let he let Collins off off the hook. I mean. What do you think, Matt? How how hurt was Collins there? Uh, you know, you know, I, I think it, it, it was good shot, real good shot. You know, Steve Collins had a good chin, uh, but it was a peach landed bang on the butt and dropped him. But as you say, he kind of caught the rope, didn't he, on the way down? And he's looking, he's smiling, laughing. He's kind of smiling at Eubank as if to say, "Yeah, you got me, good shot." But he was copious mending. You know, he knew where he was. He was okay. His legs were solid. Um, you know, Eubank did go for the finish. Like, I know he backed off, but. I think he backed up because he realised, you know, when you hurt a fighter and you go for it, you got to be careful. Like, yeah, you got to go for it if you, and try and close the show if you can. But after a after a while, after mm. a certain amount of points, if you you kind of realise he's not quite ready to go, you got to be careful then that you don't, you know, punch yourself out. There's still a couple of rounds left, so you know. And Eubank was always fairly tight at the way he was. He never boxed every second of every round. He was crafty at pacing it. So I think he he did hurt Collins. He went for it a little bit. But he realised that now nah, Collins is still he can weather the storm here, and I don't want to you know blow my you know shoot my bolts and have nothing left <clears throat> next two rounds. Yeah, he might have punched himself out for the round a little bit. I think you're right, Matt. That might have been it more than him mentally saying, "Oh, I'm not going to go for it here," because you know the fighter's instinct is to to win the fight, isn't it? First of all, and he you know he knew he was in trouble on the cards. Must have done. So just just to rewind to the um, to the very start to the to the ring walks because ring walks with Eubank were always a, they were always a huge thing you know it was really part of the theatre part of the of the drama and and he was probably the first person in in British boxing one of the first people in world boxing maybe to do them to the extent that he really did them for this one he came in on a on a Harley Davidson and. <laughs> That that's part of what I loved about it, you know. That's I'm 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 a Eubank fan, Ian. Uh, you know, unashamed, self-confessed, was then, am now, always will be Eubank senior fan. I just thought everything he did was just I just found him the most fascinating bloke um, I could possibly imagine. Yeah, and yeah. the ring walk. I always thought a ring a, a Eubank ring walk was a bit like New Zealand doing the hacker in rugby. Right, you either you either watch it and you face up to it and you take some fuel from it, or you do what Collins did, and you ignore it. Um, and what was the atmosphere like when Collins came to the ring as well? Because he gave a traditional kind of <clears throat> ring walk, but there was a real vibe about it. You know, he's got he's got his hood up, he's on the way in, he's being jostled. Yeah. It was it was old school. Yeah, I mean, it was the, it was a thunderous atmosphere. Absolutely fantastic. Um, you know, the crowd were really charged up. And, of course, they were all behind uh, Steve Collins. And, you know, he called himself the, the, the Celtic warrior and all that stuff. And he was breathing fire. So it was very, very turbocharged. And he'd made up his mind what he was going to do when Eubank made his entrance. He just sat there in the corner. 
with it with his hood on, ignoring the whole thing. Probably didn't even see the Harley Davidson. But of course, Eubank was always told it wasn't just his idea. I think you know Barry Hearn wanted him to do all that. I mean, I remember him hearing him say, "Make sure you give it the full Monty to to Eubank." But you know, those ring entrances were part of his trademark. And I always remember the one uh, against Ralph Rocchigiani in in Berlin. Do you remember that when you know the whole crowd yeah. were banging and it was a hostile, intimidating crowd, you know, and he and he he had the the sheer balls really to stand there on the ring apron, looking out at them and tapping his gloves in that way that he did, you know, as if to say, I don't care about you, you know, I'm I'm here to defy everything you're looking for tonight. And by the end, he had them all clapping him when he won the fight you know i think that was his i think that was one of his great nights that rocky gianni fight but i'm you know we're going off the we're going off the collins one a bit but you know <laughs> it was also much hoopla but it was some show and some fight that they put on and uh some story as well of course eubank's first defeat Hey everybody, this is Moto G Pete from the Nokomoto Motorcycle Podcast. Join us every week while we rate, review, ride, philosophize, and generally obsess over every single motorcycle make, model, and style that could possibly exist, plus news and racing. That's the Nokomoto Motorcycle Podcast from Moto One Podcast Network Studios. I mean, the, the, I remember watching the, uh, the, the Harley Davidson, and obviously. Collins was already in the ring and he, he, he like you said, he pretended he'd been hypnotized. He was sat in the corner, didn't he? Had, a, had earphones on and just yeah. blank, you know, eyes closed, hood over, sort of like a mystique, uh, mysterious look about him. And then, uh, you know, Eubank comes in on the Harley Davidson, simply the best. And the place was just going wild. Mm. <laughs> I met a bloke once, you know, who thought that um, simply the best had been recorded for Chris Eubank. You know, they had nothing to do with Tina Turner. It was. <laughs> I had to explain to him. I said, "No, the record had come out quite a long time before." <laughs> oh God, he'd love that, but wouldn't he, he? But he really owned it, didn't he? It really become part of his whole image. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The other great Eubank story I remember was when um, yeah, there were all these people lining the streets in in on Brighton Seafront. Uh, because they had a, like a, tour, a stage of the Tour de France or something like that there, one of these big cycle races. And Eubanks cycled out, <laughs> going cycling, was waving to them all. He thought they'd all come out to see him. <laughs> 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 so I was quite said I was quite disappointed to discover it wasn't actually for me. <laughs> said, I do uh, deserve those kind of accolades, you know. <laughs> uh, one, of, one of my favourites is when the... He bought his massive truck and he didn't have a license for it. So he got it delivered to his house, basically, but he couldn't drive it. So he just kind of <laughs> sat there beeping the horn because that was all he could that was all he could do. Um, yeah. But you mentioned Rocchigiani there and, and 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 it's fine for us to go a little bit off piece. But I, I remember that really, really well. I remember watching that because, as you say, that was a baying mob. He was away from home. They absolutely hated him. They really mm. fancied Rocchigiani. And yeah, just watching him stand on the apron for an extended period of time. He always liked to do it, didn't he? But that night, he really milked it. And you could mm. just see the faces of the people around ringside. They were just contorted yeah. um, with anger. And, and Rocchigiani had the German flag and the Italian flag, I think, shaved into each side of his head, didn't he? That was just, I remember watching that and just thinking, you know, this is just, this is epic stuff. This is, this is great stuff. This is what, this is the gladiatorial thing that boxing's got that other sports just don't just don't really have and it is it's that it is you know it was the balls on the man really that there was the reason that I, I think I just kind of took to him in the in the way that I in the way that I did I mean have we had anyone like him since do you think I mean he, he is no. a real one-off isn't he yeah, I don't think anybody before or since or ever again will be quite like Chris Eubank. I mean, do you remember he, Ronnie Davis? We used to love Ronnie. You know, he had his gym down on down at Hove and the seafront. And, and Eubank used to just call call him Porter. Porter, bring my bag. <laughs> and, and Ronnie would just laugh and, and and do it. You know, but they got on and it worked. It worked between them. So in terms of the fight, we've we've obviously we, we touched on it, but Collins got off to a got off to a good start, um, but by halfway he was he was ahead. I think everybody would agree on that. He put Eubank down in the eighth. He hit him with a body shot. 
it was partly balance. He was kind of pulling back out Eubank. Um, he kind of he didn't allow himself to go down, but he felt himself going down, allowed himself to collapse onto his back, rolled up onto his shoulders, and then just kind of rocked back the other way, straight onto his feet. And you could see that he wasn't hurt, but it's a, but it's a 10-8. And at that point, you know, he's he's in trouble. Then in the 10th, as we say, he gets the knockdown. I think Matt's right. I think he, he he did go to put the pressure on and then towards the end of the round realised Collins wasn't going to go. When the final bell went, what was your feeling at that point? Um, must, I thought You must have known Collins, Collins had it, did you, Ian? Collins won, hadn't he? Well, I think we knew Collins had won. I mean, he just, I mean, in plain language, and it's a cliche, but he did, I think he wanted it more that night. You know, it, sometimes I think with a fighter in a, on a certain point in their career, and you think of Ricky Hatton with Costa Zoo, nothing was going to stop him that night. I don't think he would have walked through walls to get to get that to get the victory that night, and he just never stopped coming. You know, even when he was down, just as Matt's described and you've described, Andy. Um, you know, he obviously wasn't going to be taken out because he was such a strong-willed fighter. Uh, and, it, you know, he re-established himself, got through that little crisis and prevailed. So I don't think that there was, in my mind anyway, no doubt at all about it that Collins had won. But maybe oh. there was a little bit of a doubt as to whether he would get it. Well, oh, yeah. Well, that's another story again. But there's all, you know, hey, look, I did Lewis Holyfield one in in New York. You know, so there's always a doubt that, um, you know, the judges are going to cook up something very, very strange, you know, and that's one of the problems boxing has in terms of credibility, and it probably is still true today. Yeah, there is always that doubt, So, but there's no doubt that night justice was done. I think you hit the nail on the head there when you said it was Steve Collins' night. He was he was just going to go through the fire. Um, I remember uh, years after watching uh, an interview when he was talking about... Uh, uh, about the fight, he was alive. It was interviewed from the time uh, when he says, "You know, whatever he hits me, if he hits me with, if he hits me with three shots, I'm going to hit him with five. If he hits me with six, I'm going to hit him with eight. Whatever happens, I am not going to lose this fight. I'm going to win." And he, he kind of had that deterrent. I remember, and the reason why I remember it so clearly because I used that in my head when I thought when I was training for the Felix Stern fight. I thought if he hits me with two, I'm going to hit him with four. If he hits me with six, I'm going to hit him with eight. I'm just going to have that sort of mentality that no matter what he hits me, I'm going to come back at. And I copied that or I took that from uh, from Steve Collins. And you know, I didn't get the decision in Germany, even though I thought I should have. But Collins on mm. that night with Eubank, he just... I, I don't think it would have mattered whatever Eubank had brought. He just wasn't going to be denied. He had this... And you said it uh, in the build-up, Ian, with Collins. He had this... Um, he could dispirit you. You know, he could break the fighter's heart. And I think he did that a little bit. Not psychologically, yes, but I think also in the ring on the night, Eubank just couldn't deter deter uh, Collins, even when he had him down in the 10th. Mm-hmm. You know, he came back quite well in the 11th. So he just, you know, he, he was tough as nails. He had a good chin and he had a savage will to win. Um, and I think in terms of boxing ability, even though he wasn't, you know, he wasn't a Sugar Ray Leonard, he was probably better than he looked. Mm. Yeah, I'd agree with that. He was. He was he, he was effective, wasn't he? And all the things you just described, Matt, um, re- really effective and very strong-willed. And that, you know, he was brought up in that, as you said, by the Petronellis in the in the Hagler gym. Um, so that was a, a tough upbringing. I doubt there were too many soft sparring sessions when he was coming through there. You, I mean, you know what it's like in America. By the way, Matt, I agree, you were... You were unlucky not to get that decision against Sturm that night. You, you, you fought your heart out and brilliantly. Yeah, cheers. Well, it was interesting to see what happened with the with the pair of them after that night because obviously they did they did rematch and Collins uh, won again. It was by split decision, but the consensus was, and I remember thinking it myself at the time that he that he won the second fight probably more convincingly maybe than he than he won the first one. Um, and that was in, that was in Cork as well. That, that was, was in Cork, in yeah. Eve. Yeah, you did that one as well, Ian. I guess. I guess. Uh, yeah, I do. But my, I, I tell you what, my recollections when I always think of Collins Eubank, I always think of the Mill Street fight somehow because with all the stuff that was going on around that fight, it, it was such a, a dramatic occasion, really, in in many ways. And the other fight, really, the rematch. I don't know. Yeah, that's kind of slipped by us a little bit in in history because yeah, I think Andy's right. Steve Collins probably won that a little bit more handily still. 
Mm. Well, they had it close. I remember that. I remember watching that lot and thinking, you know, Collins has, you know, pieced it. He's definitely won it anyway, the second one. And then the, I think it was a split decision. And I thought, oh, here we go. <laughs> yeah, yeah, here we go. But, uh, you know, I mean, it was Chris was getting towards the back end of his career, wasn't he? He'd been around um, quite a long time by then. So it was, a, I mean, a fantastic win for Steve Collins. And obviously it, it, it established him, I think, very firmly in the public's consciousness. You know, now this guy was right up there. It, I mean, it was a golden era, wasn't it? For, you know, middleweights, super middleweights around that time. Yeah, it absolutely like, was. What was it like afterwards? I mean, the, the place just must have erupted in Mill Street. Um, yeah, there were a lot of parties. In, I mean, you know what it's like in Ireland very well. Most of the time, you always seem to ha- end up with a glass in your hand, don't you? Even <laughs> so, there was there, there was uh, quite a lot consumed. I think that night, and not many people had that much sleep. But I think our primary concern, once we'd got done all the post-match interviews and press conferences and filed our reports and what have you was how the hell are we going to get back to Cork <laughs> from this from this outpost you know, way out in the wilds of uh, of Western Ireland. And, and how did you get back? Was that with a coach? I can't remember. It was an e- put it this way, it was an easier trip back to the hotel than the one I had after I covered uh, Tony Simpson and Marvin Hagler in a place called Worcester, Massachusetts. When I came outside, tried to get a cab, and there was two feet of snow. Nothing was running. So we had to walk through this blizzard. From, uh, luckily, the hotel was only about a mile away. I mean, you're lucky to survive that night, I tell you. <laughs> There's nothing quite like the boxing beat, is there? There's nothing quite nothing quite like it. Well, Darky, we won't we won't keep you much longer because um, you know, you've been generous with your time this morning. Before your audio connected, I did describe you as being in, in warm weather training in Spain ahead of your, your trip to the trip to the World Cup in, in Qatar. Yeah. So that, that well, that's what's next for you, isn't it? Uh yeah, that and it'll be even warmer in Qatar. I know it's a winter world cup, but it's still very, very hot there, I think. Uh they're claiming the Stadiums will be air conditioned, um, and we've got FIFA trying to tell us not to talk about the human rights issues and uh, uh, and the other stuff. They must be kidding. Uh, they, they clearly don't know <laughs> the journalists. So uh, it's going to be interesting. Yeah, um, yeah. I'm doing my notes. There's a lot of prep to do. A bit more prep than you have to do for boxing, but I, I really, I, I really do miss the boxing beat you described, Andy. Uh, it's it's always fabulous fun, and and you know it's a privilege and a pleasure to cover nearly every fighter that I did cover, including Matt. Yo, I'm DK, co-host of the One Star Recruits podcast. My best friend Rip and I host five-star athletes, celebs, business leaders, comedians, and coaches from around the world. Each week, I can guarantee you the show will always have great laughs, catch up on life's in relatable ways, and have a ton of fun. We're recruiting you. We are the One Stars, which means we can ask the questions that no other podcast asks to guests like Joey Chestnut, Evander Holyfield, Bobby Hurley, Jenny Finch, Ryan Lochte, Montel Jordan, New guests every week, compelling interviews that you want to hear. Check us out wherever you get podcasts, One Star Recruits. I was just going to say that to you, Ian. You, you must, uh, with, with it being such a huge part of your career and life, you must miss the boxing. Yeah, I miss the, I miss the big fights, but you know that... I had a fantastic innings doing it, and I covered I covered a great era. Um, and what happened, if people want the explanation, was you now I'd come. I'd been at Sky Sports for two decades. So I got I got an offer I couldn't refuse really to go and do football for ESPN in America. Um, so you know, it just came to that point, and they didn't they didn't have boxing. And now I've got to a point really where I've got a bit old, and really trying to cover two sports at once would be. Um, a bit a bit tough and there are very very many good young commentators like Andy who've come through now and it's their time yeah I, I mean to be honest I I don't really I don't really think you can do two sports at once I, I tried it when I was doing yeah. football as well as boxing and then and I just realized that I, I was into the boxing so much but I just thought if I'm really going to do this justice I've just got to go in up to my ears in the one thing just roll the dice mm. a bit and just 
completely commit to it. And I'm not knocking people who do more than one thing, but for me, that was mm. I kind of realized the thing that that was how it that was how it had to be. So I'm just going to embarrass you a bit before you go, Darky. Um because, you know, I've got the opportunity to do it. But I was then in the 90s when you were commentating for Sky, am now, always will be um, uh, a big fan because watching the boxing, particularly the 90s, was such a mad decade for fights. You know, I keep go, going back to it and it took me from the age of 12 to 22. And I listened to you so much. It was a bit a bit odd when I first turned up at Sky um, for a few shows, at least before you went. I did the undercard and you did the top of the bill. That was quite kind of... That was quite kind of um, surreal for me, uh, to be honest. But but I'm really glad that I got the opportunity, got the opportunity to to do it because I think I speak for for all boxing fans and for, for Matt as well when when we say that you are that you are missed because for me, the way you went about it, the way I hear you the describe goats. how you went the about goats. it, yeah, <laughs> I just think you know you 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 kind of you, you still for me you will always be you will always be that kind of gold standard that I'm still that I'm still reaching for. And if that sounds sycophantic to people listening, <laughs> I don't care. I don't care. Well, well, that, I'm very humbled by that, Andy, and thank you very much for, for saying those things. It's um, I, I I do appreciate it. You know, you know, Andy, because you do the job. It's you know, you're right. You need to devote a lot of time to it. So you need to hang around the fighters and, and know the trainers. And you know, we used to do that in in Vegas. Uh, I mean, it was a privilege and a pleasure, really, to do that. You, but we'd be there most of the week doing countdown shows. So you picked up a lot of little things, um, and it became a bit like a sponge. And somehow, in the fight, you know, something had happened in the fight, and it, you think, "Oh, God, I remember talking to something about this. How this might happen," um, and and you'd be able to use it. So you can't really do it. Um, particularly now I do football as well and football's become sort of an every night of the week type of thing. It wasn't back then. So I was able to do football and boxing on Sky Sports. Couldn't have, couldn't do that now. You're right. Um, But yeah, you're right. You've got to live around the, live around the sport. But I always said one thing as well. I never tried to get that close to people because you have to call the fights from a neutral perspective. I never wanted to be, you know, that guy was the, um, you know, the, the fan with a microphone or you, the, the mates of the fighters. I, did, I never thought that was the right thing. I got on well with them all. I like to think I did anyway, most of them. Um, you know, but always kept that slight professional distance. So anyway, Andy, you know, you're making great strides in your career now. And uh, I'm sure you're going to have a fantastic time covering this sport. Well, I mean, I'm I'm a lifer now. I'm addicted. There's no hope for me. It's it's there's there's nothing else I, I I I would want to do at this point. I really I really don't think. And yeah, I know I agree with what you just said there about that bit of that bit of distance. Okay, well, um, we'll we'll let you go. Thanks very much. Thanks very much for for sparing the time for us. And don't worry if you look out of your window in a minute, you're not going to see me standing in your garden. Um, I am I am safely <laughs> I'm safely over in East London. Uh, well, um, ple- pleasure talking to you, Andy, and you, Matt, as well. Look after yourselves. Thank you much. Take care. Okay, so that was the that was the man himself, the one and only Ian Dark. And <clears throat> Matt, we'll just we'll just uh, trace through the careers to the to the end here because he's right, Darky. That second fight between Eubank and, and Collins, it just wasn't the first one, was it? And no. you know, sequels are rarely as good as the as the first fight. But as I said, just everything that went on around that first fight, and hopefully we gave a good a good flavour of of that the last half hour or so was just pretty, pretty unique. I mean, I would love to go and cover a fight somewhere like Mill Street at the Green Glens Arena. I would absolutely love to do that. Just get off the beaten track and, and go go somewhere like that. I get to do it with the amateurs sometimes, but it's not the same because it's not, yeah. it's not packed. It's not the same kind of, it's not the same kind of I, event. I mean, you know, there's, there's, I know there's, there are ambitions for Katie Taylor to have the rematch with Serrano in Crow Park and even though, so obviously, you know, Crow Park, he doesn't get any bigger in Ireland. But I know what you're saying. There's something a little bit more mysterious about somewhere like Mill Street because it's like, Mill Street, what? <laughs> it's just, you know what I mean? It's a little bit, it's it's, it's outside of the box, isn't it? Oh, yeah. It, it kind of reminded me of, um, there's a great story around the Jack Dempsey fight in the 1920s when he fought a guy called Tommy Gibbons in in the a place called Shelby in Montana. And basically it's like a Coen Brothers film. Like there's a couple of good books about this. And basically 
the mayor of, of Shelby or the local dignitaries, it's a small place. So they had to extend the railway to basically get people to be able to go there, decided they wanted this Dempsey fight. They went all out for it. They gave Doc Kearns, his manager, a big literally barrel load full of cash, huge guarantee in their terms. And it bankrupted the place. And it was total chaos on the day of the fight. You know, get hold of this. I'm amazed nobody's made a film out of it. There's one called Shelby's Folly. There's another one called The Sack of Shelby. Um, but it just had that kind of element to it. And it was it was fantastic. But even after the rematch, those two weren't quite done with each other in terms of their careers because Collins had a couple of fights with Nigel Benn. A past his best Nigel Benn, I think it's, it's fair to say. Um, and then he was due to box Joe Calzaghe. But I think he picked up a few injuries and he realised he was getting towards the end and that he, he basically, he, he'd done his thing uh, and he decided to retire. He retired undefeated as a world champion. And Eubank stepped into to box Kawasaki instead. And, and it was the start of a run of three consecutive defeats which ushered him into retirement, Chris. But he went out, despite those three defeats, Matt, in a blaze of glory because he took that fight against Kawasaki at short notice much younger man. We all know what he went on to achieve. And then he stepped up in weight and took on an absolute rock hard, very good fighter as well in Carl Thompson. And although they were three L's, he gathered more affection and more love for those three fights, probably than for all of the wins. Well, so when we talked earlier about the world tour he did, and, you know, Eubank had a, you know, he got the rub of the green several times in his career, didn't he? You know, like those two fights were very close. Like he, you know, he he had a. I think he was struggling to do the weight a little bit at, at that time as well. He 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 stuck the place out a few times. Really got the rubber to green. You know what I mean? He couldn't fight. He he was really struggling with the pace. He couldn't fight three minutes of a round, and he did get the you know, and maybe under motivated as well. You know, maybe some of these fights he might have been a little bit under motivated. But um, and then Collins obviously beats him twice. Uh, but you're right. I think I think. Certainly, the two Carl Thompson fights when he stepped up two weight divisions uh, to cruise away, and and because they were both brilliant fights, and he was clearly the smaller man, I think he really kind of redeemed himself with those two performances. It didn't matter that he got beaten; people, the fans, he really sort of won them back over because of the heart and the courage that he showed in those fights. People were like, you know, I, I was at the second Thompson fight; I was only sixteen, I think, at the time. And uh, I remember, I remember we were in the stand, and there was about eight of us that went up, and probably four of us were real staunch, mad boxing fans, and the other four just kind of came, you know, for the crack, really. And uh, when Eubank was coming out, and everyone, you know, Tina Turner, simply the best, everyone was on their feet, and we were just going, Eubank, 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 and my mate who's next to me, who's not really a boxing fan, he went. Fuck it, next time, let's just go to a Tina Turner concert. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he, he was just, you know, that that was that was um why I was so fascinated with him, really. He just he had an effect that just very few people do. And because you know, he made his name on terrestrial TV, that helped. You know, you had Nassim who came after him, who was another electric personality, but he just wasn't as big because he was built on Sky, who did a brilliant job of, of building him. Ricky Hatton, the same. He, he Big Ricky Hatton, absolutely no question he was big. But they couldn't be as big as, as Eubank and Ben, just because of the, the differing platforms, really. And Chris, Chris Senior is obviously still heavily involved in, in... He's still around. We still see him around. You know, it's still... I mean, I don't, I don't want to go on one of our famous tangents. I don't no, know. please do. <laughs> but, like, it, you, 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 you've, you've nailed it there. I mean... Naz was bigger in the sense that, you know, what he achieved, the deal he did at HBO, he went to America. But you're in terms of profile here, like when you boxed on Trust Saturday Fight Night ITV, you were on the back pages of the newspapers as well then. And everyone read the papers back then. Now, you know, if we look, we've talked about it, how boxing's got fragmented, PBC, The Zone, you know, and... Even now, if you look at the, the, I read an article, or um, yeah, I read an article recently, or we spoke about it, and it was talked about how um, uh, I think it might be with Mike Taffer, we might have discussed it, where they're not actually spending the same money in shoulder programming to hype up the twenty four sevens, this type of thing. They're not spending the money to promote the pay per view. They're kind of if they do one hundred and fifty thousand buys, they're okay with that. And they're doing more of them and they're not spending the money where they want to do the million buys. They kind of feel like 
They're out of that situation now where the million buys days are over in the US we're talking about. And actually, if they do 100, 150, that generates enough money that they're happy with that. So I just think if you, so then if you go right back to when, you know, Eubank and Ben were boxing on terrestrial TV, television, free to wear, and, and, and the connection with the newspapers at that time, plus any other publications, magazines or whatever, you're talking, if you, if you were big enough to be on that slot, you, you, you were literally huge. Yeah, agreed, agreed. And we we did that first um, fight between Eubank and Ben with Bonsi, and and we've we've done another Eubank now with with Darkey. But um, somebody whose name popped into my head the other day, who I thought would be great to sit down with, he's up your way as well, and, and I really think he'd be up for it just to give us a flavour of what that was all like at ITV. Is is uh, is Gary Newborn? You know, some of those IT, Jim Rosenthal, these would be great guys to get on, wouldn't they, to just talk about the the whole madness of all of it, really. Yeah. I know I know Gary Newborn because I remember speaking with um, um, Ambrose Mende because he was a big part around that time. And, and obviously, uh, you know, Paddy and Tommy Lynch, who I, when I turned professional with, I was training in their gym. They, were, they managed and trained, um, you know, Pat Cowdell, Robert McCracken, um, Guys like Tony Willis, Huey Fjord, like they, you know, at that time they had a big stable in Birmingham, and uh, I think for, I think the, the first ITV shows that Frank Warren did, you know, Pat Cowdell, Zuma Nelson, um, Steve Early for the British title against Clinton McKenzie, they they would have co-promoted that, or Frank would have promoted it in association with, with the Lynches, and you know Gary Newbon would have been a, an instrumental part in all of that, you know, Eubank. Uh, ben, the first fight was at the NEC. A lot of the big fights were happening at the NEC at that time. So that 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 that's actually someone we should definitely uh, do a podcast with because we go right back into that era. Oh yeah, hundred percent. Like one of the one of the kind of early things I did on my first go around at Talksport is in the first couple of years. I remember going to Germany when England beat Germany five one, and I was I was a bag man. I was a I was a runner, you know, I was getting the coffees and all the rest of it. And I was kind of Gary's bag man for the, for the weekend, which was actually a really good gig because he did want things the way he wanted them. But if you were with him, like you were looked after, like he made sure, you know, this is my guy, you know, don't be fucking around with him. You know, it was, it was, you know, he was, he was, he was good as gold. You know, I've just, I've just had an idea as well. So, you know, we could, we could do, we could definitely get um, Gary Newbert, but even Bob May. We should do one with Bob yeah, May. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. We've had a few other ideas for 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 good guests coming up, which uh, we won't tell everybody all of them, just in case we don't manage to, just in case we don't manage to get some of them. But that was that was great fun with Darkie. But just just before we wrap it up, just a, a quick word on Steve on on Steve Collins because he was a big personality in his in his own right, and you look at what he achieved. You know, by the time of that first Eubank fight. By the time of the Chris Pyatt fight, say when he when he won his world title, he was twenty seven and three, two defeats in world title fights, and one in the European title fight. You know, Mike McCallum, uh, Reggie Johnson, Sumbu Kalambe. Now they're all good fighters, and and the the latter two were by I think both by majority decisions, so they were very they were very close. But then he won that middleweight title, then he won the super middleweight title. Um, he never lost as a world champion. You know, he's. I wouldn't say he's an unsung hero because I think I think he does get his respect. Absolutely, he does. But we don't see that much of him, really, do we? I guess. No, no. Well, um, no, not 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 recently. Anyway, I think I think maybe initially he hung around for a little bit. But you know, it's it's a uh, sport. The sport moves on, doesn't it? You know, if you're not if you don't if you don't stay within the sport from when you leave, it's hard to get back in, really. Uh, certainly from a t- television perspective anyway it's unless you go in training or managing fighters then and even then if you tr- if you're training or managing a fighter or fighters you're only as good as the fighters you've got you know you can be the best manager in the world you can know more than anybody as a trainer as a manager but if you haven't got the fighter it's it doesn't matter you're not going to be in big fights so you're not going to be on the television you're not going to you're going to drift away a little bit and you know from 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 a television perspective you know every year you're retired, your own career becomes less relevant. So if you if you kind of leave it a few years and think, well, I'm going to enjoy my retirement and then I'm going to get back into it, you, you may have missed the boat a little bit because the sport moves on and other people step into those roles and they establish themselves. So it's um, 
I think for, with, with Steve Collins, he probably he earned a lot of money towards the back end of his career. I think he probably did the after dinner speaking circuit a little bit. Um, and I think he just probably, yeah, I don't know, maybe just stepped away from it a little bit and then didn't quite get the ambition or didn't have the ambition. Also, Pascal, his brother, kind of went into training and, you know, because Steve had kind of had the better career as a professional, I'm guessing he probably didn't want to, you know, steal his thunder a little bit. You know what I mean? I don't know what I'm saying. Yeah. Well, I've had a great career. Yeah, Pascal out of the Celtic Warriors gym in, in yeah. Dublin. You'd see Steve yeah. in your corner, wouldn't you? But like you say, I yeah. think it was absolutely his decision. I, I heard him on, on Triss's podcast not that long ago, maybe about quite quite an early guest that Triss had. Triss, by the way, has got Darkey and John Rawling on a pod at the minute called Ringside Rewind, which is really, really good. I wanted to make sure I remembered to, to mention that. So check that out if you haven't already. I'm sure a lot of Macklin's takes uh, listeners have, have got onto that one. And he, he seemed in a really good place, you know. And, and it's healthy, isn't it, when a fighter leaves the sport? That some, some people want to stay in it, like you have, uh, in whatever capacity. But others realise, all right, well, that was then, this is now. That was great, but it's over. Um, quite like to do something else. You know, mm. that's it's good, isn't it? You know, I, like, it makes me smile when I see people who are able to just leave it behind. Yeah, absolutely. It's, um, it, 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 it's, uh, it's a funny one because, obviously, it's such a massive part of your life, your boxing career, because, you know, from the age of whatever, 10, or whenever you start amateur, you've got the amateurs, then the professionals. And it's it's kind of all you've really dreamed of. And so you haven't really dreamed past past it, you know. So you um, you just assume that everything will fall into place. You'll be married, you'll have kids, you'll be settled, and you'll be happy and content. But I can tell you that, you know, a lot of guys I speak to and I can ones from the outside that I see and it's like you know retirement for boxers it, it, it's it's a tough it's a tough for most it's a tough time in their lives some of them really really struggle even years after you know they, they really struggle to kind of fill that void you know because boxing is but you said it there you couldn't do football and boxing because you know maybe in theory you could but in reality it just won't work out because boxing is so consuming that you just don't have the headspace for anything else. And, you know, I, I, you know, I'm saying this the other day, I think like I, my career, when I look at it, it was a 15-year career. So it was a long, it was a long one, you know, longer than average. And um, did I love every minute of it? No, I did not. I, I would, I would do, love to do it all again. And, and, and the highs were worth the, 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 the lows, I guess, you know, but there was the, uh, the but even, Outside of the highs and the lows, there was lots of mundane, monotonous, lonely, hungry, you know, disappointments, setbacks, frustrations, you know, a lot of that, an awful lot of that. So day to day, people say, I miss you. And I say, well, day to day, no, not at all. <laughs> you know, but, you know, look, look, if you could cram the highlight reel of 15 years into, you know, they, they were unbelievable, those highs, those nights, they were just those experiences, the people you met, the characters. It was just unreal, unreal. But, you know, in between the highlight reels, there's, there's a lot of, you know, lonely, hungry, tired, frustrated, under pressure, you know. So where I'm in my life now, and, and I like to see it with most, I like to hear fighters, like you said there, when you can see them talking, you can tell they're really at peace with themselves, where they've been, what they've achieved, what they haven't achieved, what the mistakes they made. It's all at peace with it. I, I, I like that. I, I like that. And, I, and I, I really, and I don't like it, and I feel bad when I hear, when I see an older fighter, and I can I can see they're just they're not at peace with, with their career or they're not at peace themselves, or, or they're struggling in, in later life for whatever, you know, maybe to fill that void, that purpose, the ambition, whatever. And it's, 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 it's you know, you do, it's sad because I think, it's so hard, the, the road of boxing, the, the, the pursuit of success in boxing is so hard that what's the point in doing it if you can't be happy at the end of it? Yeah, 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 absolutely. I mean, this, this is a this is a it's a great subject. This, you know, we'll 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 do one on this in uh, in the future. And and yeah, I I was watching the um, the overlap the pod uh, YouTube thing that Gary Neville does the other week, and he had Paul Scholes on and. I'm a United fan, so I was always going to watch that. And you don't hear loads from Scholes. I mean, he does some punditry, but he doesn't. You don't hear him talk about himself much. And Gary Neville just said to him, "They're both in their kind of 
they're about a couple of years older than me, so they're kind of like 46, 47. And Gary Neville just said to him, so, you know, how do you, how's day-to-day life? You know, do you have your ups, do you have your downs? And he says, yeah, I have quite a lot of down days. Um, and Gary Neville, who seems like a really busy kind of upbeat guy, just said, oh, really? How's that? And he said, well, I haven't found anything that I enjoy as much as what I used to do. And you think about it, of course he hasn't. <laughs> I mean, how is that? How's that? How's that really possible? It's not, is it? No, it, it, it is, and it's uh, yeah. Like it's not. It's boxing is not the only one. I'm sure, like you say, footballers. The only thing, at least footballers, what I've realised is, you know, they can't play Premier League football, but they can they can drop down a couple of divisions, so they can long out their career a little bit. <laughs> yeah, um, they can play, yeah. you know, the, the over forties or the Masters. You know, I've yeah. got a few mates now that play. You know, not, they weren't Premier League players, but they, they did play professionally and they, they've like, you know, they play over 35s, this type of thing, you know, so they can still, you can't do that in boxing. No. Do you know what I mean? You can't do that in boxing. So, you know, let's be honest, you know, once you're into your 30s in boxing, the days are numbered. Yeah. If you're clean, really if you're a clean athlete, then if you're a clean athlete, get the other side of 30 and you're going downhill. And, and it pleases me when I see it happen because it's what should happen. Yeah, yeah. If you've got, listen, you've got to be honest with it. You know, there's a guy late 30s and he's, you know, boxing with more energy than ever. Don't look good, does it? No, absolutely not. No, we could all name a few of them, but we won't uh, because we don't fancy a load of legal letters to uh, Macklin Towers (laughs) and Solly Hall. Okay, well, we'll wind it up there. So we got, got off to a, you know, got into a few couple of different things there towards the end, but that was a, that was a big fight, deep dive for Eubank Collins. Um, so, John Joe Walker, thanks thanks for um, jogging our memory on that. And thanks for the recommendation because it's like you kind of read my mind when you sent your list back and, and there it was because it was it's one we've been meaning to do. Feel free, everybody, to, to send a few more in as to, you know, other fights you would like us to get into because it's really fun, this, for us. You know, I go back and leaf through my library and get online and, you know, check out and there's things I've forgotten that I remember and pretty much any fight is online now and you get to watch it I was watching it yesterday Dempo Paul Dempsey would have been like early mid 30s he's got his dicky bow on because Sky that's how Sky did it back then Barry McGuigan was with him yeah he was great you know the footage is a bit grainier but it just makes it even better uh Darky and Big Glenn you know it's just it was you know it's really fun just to look back on those kinds of fights so I urge people to watch it again if you if you've got a spare hour or so Okay, we will uh, we will catch you again next time. Podcast Network.